Hello, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 12 of Dr. Music. I am Matthew Marullo. Thank you so much for joining me again. In previous episodes, we have spoken about the very famous Polish composer, Frédéric Chopin, who lived from, sadly, only 1810 to 1849. Definitely one of the greatest composers of the Romantic period. And a lot of people think he's just one of the greatest composers ever. One great thing about Chopin is that you can definitely sing his melodies. His melodies are so tuneful, so singable. You feel like you could add words to them. But sometimes Chopin is kind of devious. When he writes a melody, it's deceptively very, very simple. Very memorable, but very simple. And that's why I wanted to look at one of his waltzes, a very famous one in C-sharp minor. This is the waltz that a lot of people who take piano lessons, they wind up playing it. It's not easy, but it's also not one of his more difficult pieces. And here's the thing. This particular waltz in C-sharp minor has a two-note motif. You know, a motif is just a very brief musical idea. For example, the famous motif in Beethoven's Fifth Symphony is four notes. Bum, 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 bum but they could be either longer or shorter. And the shortest they can really be is only two notes, if you think about it. And what always interests me about a lot of different types of music is how a very talented composer can generate a lot of music with the simplest of means. In this case, really only using two notes. Now, these are just not any two notes. Chopin is employing what's known as the psi motif. And this goes back all the way to the 16th century, but it was really used a lot in the classical and the romantic period. It was actually known also as the Mannheim Sigh, referring to the Mannheim Orchestra in Germany during the mid-18th century that really ushered in, helped to usher in the classical period. And I'm going to be talking about that in a minute. But what is the Sigh motif in general? Well, it's a two-note motif descending by half-step, like this. And the reason why it's called that is because a lot of times it gives the impression of a sigh or maybe crying or weeping. If I put it in a chordal context, it might remind you of a lot of pieces that you've heard, like this. That was a whole bunch of sighs in a row over what's called a diminished seventh chord, and it's become kind of a cliche in the Romantic period. A lot of composers have used that effect. The emphasis is usually on the first note, and then it goes down a half step. Or it could go down a whole step, so either one piano key over or two piano keys over. Now remember I was saying that another name for this psi motif is the Mannheim psi. Again, that's referring to the Mannheim Orchestra or the Mannheim School, the composers who belonged to the Mannheim school from the mid to the late 18th century, these composers were trying something new. And what they were doing is they were creating effects with the symphony orchestra that were kind of foreign to the Baroque period before it. Now, this is a big generalization, but in the Baroque period, composers usually like to approach a composition harmonically. In other words, from the bottom. When I talk about the bottom, I'm talking about the lowest note, the bass. A typical Baroque composition would use what's called a basso continuo, which was a bass line in a keyboard instrument, 
like a harpsichord or an organ. And there are these numbers under the bass notes. Those are called figures. And the figures told you what harmony to play. Now, along with the keyboard instrument, there was usually a bass instrument like a cello or a bassoon. But Baroque composers back then were kind of the jazz musicians of their time in that all they really needed was a, was a bass line with the numbers, the figures underneath each note, and they could improvise all of the rest of the music just from the bass line in the same way that a jazz musician, they're given what's called a lead sheet with just the melody and chord symbols, except in the case of Baroque composers, they were given a bass line. Now, that's not to say that the compositions didn't have all of the notes written out for the different instruments. It was just a convention. It was something that composers were expected to do. It was a technique. Somebody like Johann Sebastian Bach, if given a figured bass, that's a bass line with the figures underneath, he could extemporize an entire composition. So if you were a professional musician back then and you saw a bass line, it was your job to fill in the chords because you were expected to know what those numbers meant underneath the bass line. Now, that all changes in the classical period because now the emphasis is not so much on the harmony, but on the melody, tuneful melodies, simple melodies that people can sing back. Because who were they catering to? They were catering to a more general audience, not just an aristocratic audience, but a more general audience. They wanted the music to be friendlier and singable and memorable. So... When composers like, for instance, Johann Stamitz were writing music, I don't know if you ever heard of Stamitz, but he was a Mannheim composer, he was really thinking more melodically. He wasn't doing all this fancy counterpoint, many melodies at the same time. He really wanted to impress his audience with not just a memorable melody, but very, very impressive effects with the orchestra. So, for instance, one of the Mannheim tricks of the orchestra was called the Mannheim Rocket, which was a really fast arpeggio going up. Now, for those of you who don't know what an arpeggio is, arpeggio is sounding the notes of a chord melodically going either up or down. So a Mannheim Rocket might sound like this. That's the kind of thing that we hear a lot. But back then, it was pretty new hearing an entire string section do that. There was also the Mannheim Crescendo. A crescendo is when the music gets gradually louder. This was a very dramatic effect. Of course, composers in the past did plenty of crescendos, but not this dramatic. This was really showmanship. And then there was the Mannheim Sigh, which was adopted by many composers after that in the Romantic period, which is what I was playing before, a two-note descending motif. So these effects and more kind of became the trademark of the classical period adopted by composers like Mozart and Haydn and Beethoven. And then later on into the Romantic period, you heard that Mannheim sigh all the time, all the way into the 20th century. Now getting back to Chopin's waltz and C-sharp minor. And remember, a waltz is in three. One, two, three, one, two, three. And we think of a waltz as a dance. But composers like Chopin and Johann Strauss Jr., they wrote stylized dances. These are dances that are very elegant, and you didn't have to dance to them. You could just listen to them as a piece of serious concert music. I mean, you can dance to them, but you don't have to. 
And this particular waltz is one of many beautiful lyrical waltzes written by Chopin that is really not meant to be danced to, but just to be listened to and admired. Now, Chopin's waltzes were composed in such a way that he had different sections, and each section was a particular melody, often repeated. So let me play the first section of Chopin's C-sharp minor waltz, and you're going to be hearing Arthur Rubinstein playing the piano. Now, how does that melody begin? Well, it begins with what's called an anacrusis, or a pickup note. That's the note before the first measure of the melody. And then, a psi motif, or the Mannheim psi. Hear that half step? Now, right after that, it's like the melody comments on that. It's kind of almost like a dialogue within the melody, because then the melody has another half-step motion, but what's called a neighbor motion. A neighbor motion is when you start with a main note, and then the note right after it is chromatically right above it, a half-step above it, or it could be a half-step below it. So let me play that for you. Now Chopin decorates it with a grace note like this. Then the next note he leaps up, and then he repeats the figure. Now let me play both hands on the piano for you so you could hear the whole context. Now what does he do next? He continues in that pattern. He does another falling psi motif, or Mannheim motif, followed by the double neighbor note figure. So to summarize, we started with first a psi motif, then a repeated neighbor note figure, then again a psi motif, and another repeated neighbor note figure. What happens next? You guessed it another two-note psi motif, but then it's followed by a new figure, a repeating note figure rising, and that culminates in another psi motif. Followed by another rising repeated note figure, and that takes us to the end of the phrase where we have a repeated note chromatic figure going down by half step. And remember, chromatic means half step. And this is the grand motif of this entire piece, half steps. Because remember, a psi motif, da da, just going down by a half step. So a simple half step generates 
all of the music of this melody. So first of all, we have a bunch of these Mannheim sighs. Those are all moving down by step. Then we have these neighbor note figures that are by half step. We also have these repeated note figures, but those are also going by half step and are followed by another sigh. Now keep in mind that one that I just played, the, the sigh that I just played was not a half step, it was a whole step. But these musical sighs are always descending by some kind of a step, either a half step or a whole step. So if we were going to reduce this melody to its basic component, to a simple cell, it's really just da da, ah, a sigh. That's it. Nothing more complex than that, as simple as you can get. And yet that basic idea of a falling step, that's what a sigh is, a falling step, or a half step, or a whole step, is developed even to the very end of the entire melody where we have just a repeated note chromatic scale going down by half step. And now to put all of that in perspective, let's listen to Arthur Rubinstein one more time. Now, right after that, Chopin moves on to the second melody of the waltz. And the question is, does the second melody, even though it sounds very different, does it bear any resemblance to the first part of the piece? Let's listen. Pretty different, right? Do you understand his general technique there? He's repeating the same thing over and over, the same melodic figure over and over. Except, not exactly. Every time he repeats it, it's getting a little bit lower. And that melodic figure sounds like this. Now let me play the first three notes of that. Do you recognize that? That's a neighbor note motif. The half-step motion going up and then back down Remember in the original melody, we had the psi motif followed by that neighbor note. As a matter of fact, it was the exact same notes, just down an octave. So this in the first melody becomes this in the second melody. 
So again, a tiny, unremarkable melodic cell gains greater significance because it becomes the seed of the second melody. And what does he do with that figure? Like I said, he repeats it, but each time he repeats it, it's getting lower. So in other words, what is the figure doing? It's getting lower, it's descending, it's falling like the psi motif. This kind of thing I've discussed in previous episodes where a tiny kernel of music becomes much more important, whether a composer does that consciously or unconsciously, these kind of correlations are a testament to the poetry of the music, specifically the poetry of the notes themselves. Now, after that second melody, Chopin does something that's pretty standard. He moves to the parallel major. In other words, he goes from C-sharp minor to C-sharp major, although he doesn't notate it as C-sharp major. He notates it as D-flat major. C-sharp and D-flat are the exact same notes. He's using D-flat major because it's a friendlier key. D-flat major has five flats. C-sharp major has seven sharps. And any piano player is going to want to deal with five flats instead of seven sharps. So here's Arto Rubinstein again playing that third melody. third melody, he goes back to the second melody, then he's going to go back to the first melody, and then end again with the second melody. So the form of the piece is A, B, C, B, A, B. Now let me play you the first three notes of that new melody in the major mode. Now if that sounds a little bit familiar, listen to the first three notes of the very first melody. Remember, it started with that preparatory note, the upbeat, and then the psi motif? Well, there it is in its major mode, guys. And believe me, that is no accident. Now, this new melody, what does it do right after that? So in other words, it's kind of a descending melody. The notes are going down, which is another theme in this entire piece falling or descending. Then what he does is he repeats that figure, but it's a little bit higher, so he's reaching up, reaching up, but then at the very end of the melody, we again have a scale going down, and then he goes back to the second melody of the piece. So keeping with the romantic tradition, there is a striving, there is a romantic reaching, but at the same time, there's also a falling, a sigh. But beyond these poetic connections, if you ever hear a piece of music that has melody after melody after melody, and somehow, even though they're different melodies, they're right. There's something about the character of those melodies that they just belong together somehow. It reminds me of what one of my composition teachers said when I was in graduate school. He said that composition is two things, choice and inevitability. 
Now, every creative artist has choice when they're creating art, whether it be a painting or a piece of music or a work of literature. But what's magical is the inevitability, somehow a turn of phrase or a word or a paint stroke had to be there. It was almost like it was always there. They just grabbed it out of thin air and put it there. When you listen to these melodies in Chopin's waltz, somehow all of it is inevitable. And that's what I really love about great pieces of music, regardless of the style. Hope to see you next time, because one thing about Dr. Music, it just gets better and better.